0: You are listening to a sermon by Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in Escondido, California. For more information about New Life, visit us online at newlifepca.com. That's N-E-W-L-I-F-E-P-C-A dot com. Okay, to prepare ourselves to come to the Lord's table this morning, we're going to return to 1 Peter uh, it's been a while since we've been in 1 Peter, and we're coming back to it. We're coming back to it a little out of order. Uh, we're going to look at the very end of 1 Peter. I'll go back uh, in the next n- number of weeks and fill in the gaps. But I, uh, it makes sense today to look at 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 14. Uh, this is a communion meditation, so I won't be able to touch on everything in this text, but I wanted to read it all. Um, it's printed in the bulletin for you if you don't have your Bibles. Uh, If you're able, would you please stand with me for the reading uh, of God's Word. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight This is God's word, as Peter himself said in this letter, All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, by your Holy Spirit this morning, would you help us to see and understand your word and to live it out in faith in Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, This sermon is more difficult to preach than others, and that's probably because the preacher needs to hear it more than you do. And that's for two reasons. I've confessed to you first that uh, in the in the past, I've confessed to you that anxiety, worry, is a deeply ingrained sin pattern in me. Second, I've been convicted as I've been reading second Peter excuse me, first Peter. First uh, Peter 3:15, famous verse has convicted me. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. You know, I ask myself, am I getting asked that enough? Right? Are you getting asked that enough? What's the reason for the hope uh, that's in you? If we're not getting asked that, uh, then are our lives indistinguishable from the world? That's been something on my mind. Teacher addresses both of these issues, sort of the, the radical nature of the Christian life that should cause people to ask us what our hope is, as well as our ability to live without worry. Uh, without anxiety as followers of Jesus. Both those things are here. Uh, and so we're going to uh, touch on those. Um, and I thought since it dealt with shepherd, uh, elders, uh, right, he talks about elders first, that this would be also a good way to kind of put a bow on our uh, shepherding series that we just completed. So as we come to the Lord's table in just a few minutes... I want you to be able to come knowing and reflecting on three truths from what Peter says here. First, your life as a Christian properly lived should make no sense to people in a post-Christian society like ours. Your Christian life properly lived should make no sense to people who are not Christians, living in our post-Christian society. Second, with respect to your sin, with respect to your suffering, there is much more going on than you see. Much more going on than you see. Peter lets us in on that. And third, and finally, the Christian life is always, always characterized by... short-term suffering, and long-term glory. In that order. So be prepared. Short-term suffering, long-term glory. Be prepared. So first, your life as a Christian, properly lived, shouldn't make sense to our unbelieving friends living in the post-Christian society that we live in. Now, Peter starts making this point by talking to the elders. Elders are to exercise their authority, exercise oversight in the church in a very specific way, right? Voluntarily, eagerly, freely. Uh, and as our text says in verse 3, without domineering over those who are in their charge. The, the Greek verb there is a compound word that literally means lording over. In other words, elders are not to use the power of position. They're not to use their biblical authority to get people to do what they want them to do, to shape the church like they want it to be shaped. I mean, that's how leaders in a post-Christian World use power, that's why they want power. To coerce people to their agenda, to shape institutions in their image, but not elders in Christ's church. Verse 3 they exercise their power to be examples, pointers, types. It's literally types. The the Greek word is tupoi, types. So what are elders to be types of, examples of, pointers to? Well, the answer, of course, is Jesus. Elders are to exercise their authority, their power, in the same way Jesus did. Now, why would, it, why would anyone do that, right? Because Jesus didn't use his power for himself. Jesus didn't use his power to coerce. Jesus didn't lord it over people. All the things that the world does with power. How, how is it that elders will not use their authority that way? The answer is in verse 4. And when the chief shepherd, Jesus, appears... All right, referring to his return as, as king and judge, you will receive, you elders will receive the unfading crown of glory. You see, the Christian leadership, eldership, leading like Jesus, only makes sense in light of a hope, a reality, a glory beyond death. A reality that the world knows nothing of, which is why our, you know, elders leading makes no sense to them. A glory that comes from being with and pleasing God. Now, elders aren't the only ones, though. Who, who will know that glory. This isn't just relevant to elders. Peter goes on in verse five to, to say that every Christ follower, all of you who are Christians, are, you're to live your lives with in two in two ways, right? With humility and with serenity. Peace. Now he doesn't use serenity or peace. What he says is be humble and Cast your anxieties on God. Stated positively, that would be then you are, you're, you're living without anxiety. You're, you're living without worry. What is it to live with humility? Well, it means that um, you serve God, you serve other people, rather than being served. It means you consider the interests of God and other people more important than your own. It means you don't repay evil with evil, but you repay evil with good. It means you love and pray for people, even your enemies. We could go on with what humility looks like, but right, incredibly radical, incredibly Jesus-like. To live with serenity, to live with peace means that you don't get anxious or worried even about genuinely bad things that are happening to you right now or are going to happen to you right now. So much of my worry, I don't know about yours, is, is considering the future without really f- considering the promises of God in his word so much of my worry is about things that never come to pass but even if they do come to pass we are called to cast our anxieties on, on to god who lives like that the world doesn't right why do you tie on humility? Our, 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 uh, our text says, clothe yourselves with humility. It literally says, tie humility on. I suspect Peter was reflecting back on a, an, on a particularly powerful episode in his life when Jesus Christ, shortly before he was crucified, stood up and tied a towel around his waist and stooped down and washed the feet of his men, something only slaves would do. Tie on humility. Why would you do that? Right? Makes no sense in our world. Why do you do it? Answer verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. How can you be serene, peaceful, and not anxious in the face of, of stuff you're facing or stuff that you think you might be facing? Answer, verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him. And the word there. Is the, the image suggested by that word is the, is the throwing of cargo onto a beast of burden. Cast all your anxieties on him, God, because he cares for you. Of course, the post-Christian world doesn't live like this. It makes no sense to them. Humility is sneered at. Fear. Fear is trafficked 24-7 on TV and social media. The only way the Christian life of humility and, and casting anxieties off of us and onto God is because there is a hope, a reality, and a glory the world knows nothing about. Right? It's a present reality. God cares for you. and it's a future reality god is going to lift you up don't worry god is going to lift you up at just the right time it's 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 those two god centers realities he, he cares for you he's going to exalt you at the right time that powers your hum, humili, your humility that causes your anxiety to disappear because you're Throwing it onto Jesus. And you know, friends, when you do this, when you even get close to this, when you live in this post-Christian world with a humility that lifts other people up, with an otherworldly peace that people, your unbelieving friends, don't have... And want like a glass of water. They're going to eventually start asking you what the reason is for the hope that's in you. What do you? How are you living this way? Right? They know it isn't in them. Okay, that's first point. Your life, your Christian life, properly lived, should should really make no sense in an unbelieving world. It depends on, it turns on God-centered realities, a hope, a glory that the world doesn't know, but we do. Second, with respect to your sin and your suffering, there is much more going on than you can see. You know, I've heard it from a lot of people in the last 18 months or so, and I've said it myself. We are going through crazy times, right? <laughs> Can I get an amen? Um, a lot of people are uh, are doing things and saying things like they've never done or said before, right? In some cases, it's hard to recognize people you thought you knew—friends, family members, even even myself sometimes. And and as I've processed this, and of course we're all still processing it, um, as I reflected back on, on the years I've I've walked with Jesus. Um, which is often often seems like one step forward and two steps back for me. Um, I, 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 you know, there 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 have been times when people I love and respect that aren't believers act in just unexplainable ways, inconsistent ways, irrational ways, ways that you would think they would be smart enough to not think. You know. It, it, it just and I, it just it, and I used to get confused about it I mean, what's going on, right? So whenever now I see kind of this you know craziness or irrationality, or, or people acting in inconsistent or ungodly or ways, I'm reminded that there's something else at work here. Right There's someone else at work here. And that someone else is the devil. Uh, Peter, brings, P- Peter brings him up. Uh, and in bringing him up and warning us about him, G- Peter is simply uh, echoing Jesus. Jesus talked a lot uh, about Satan. And repeatedly affirmed, without shame, without apology, uh, repeatedly affirmed the reality, the power, the evil, the the danger associated with uh, the devil. Now, C.S. Lewis, you know, wisely noted years ago, we today sort of make two errors with respect to the devil, and both both are errors, right? One is that we make too little of him. We r- ridicule him. We lampoon him. We, uh, we um, you know, we we consider him a, a nothing more than you know a cartoon character. Uh, we don't believe him in him, uh, which is, of course, as Lewis says, ex- precisely what the devil would like and can use. But the other error is to make too much of him, right? To, 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 to find a demon under every rock or around every corner to think that, that, uh, that, that Satan has more power than he does. Uh, We need to be sober minded. We need to be intelligent. We need to be mindful, prepared, you know, not ignorant, not crazy. Um, Paul reminds us, right, that our battles, which, you know, manifest themselves as battles with people, aren't really with the people. Right? We, don't, we don't battle against flesh and blood," he said. Right? But against, our battle is with, with the personal, spiritual forces of darkness that are behind the people that are arrayed against God and God's people and God's purposes. That spiritual evil is a real thing. It's a personal thing and it's operating in these days. And and the reason why Paul brings up the devil here is because he's addressing the 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 sins of the Christians here. And and it's and, and that's relevant because that's what the devil uses, right? When we sin, we give the devil a foothold uh, in our lives. You see, when, when Paul is I mean, Peter is exerting these people to, to humility, what's the sin he's speaking against? It's pride, right? When, when he's urging these people to cast their anxieties on God, what's the sin he's speaking against? It's worry. Fear, anxiety, pride, man, pride. You want to read a great thing about pride? I mean, C.S. Lewis's chapter on pride in, in *Mere Christianity* is, is is a short but wonderful read. In that chapter, he calls pride the complete anti-God state of mind, and it's just what, what's. Insidious about pride, and it's certainly my pride, is that you know, it's you know, we just have this kind of innate desire of, for self affirmation, and it just bubbles up all the time. I have to pray against my pride every day. Pride is you know, making life about you, your rights, your position, your reputation, your name. You're being right in your own eyes. You're being more right than other people. Pride is what drives you to compare yourself to other people. And as Lewis helpfully reminds us, when you're, when you're looking around at other people, uh, it's really hard to fix your eyes on Jesus. Jesus. Because when you fix your eyes on Jesus, pride tends to dissolve because you see yourself for the vapor that you are and you see yourself as the sinner you are, as as one just like all of those people you're looking at, a sinner in need of grace, desperately in need of the grace of God, standing, existing, living, breathing only by the grace of God. Pride denies your total need of God and your absolute dependence on God. And that's why pride opposes God, and that's why it says here that God opposes the proud and gives grace uh, to the humble. There's nothing more than the devil would want than to put you in a position where you're opposed by the most powerful force in the universe, When you're a po- if the devil can put you in a position by your pride where you are now uh, being resisted by God, then you are in a losing place, and that's exactly where the devil wants you. So if pride is a denial of your need of God, then, then anxiety is a denial of of the love of God. Anxiety is, de- is, is to deny that God really cares for you. And that's, you think about it, in, in, in light of what God has done out of his love for us, including sending and sacrificing his own son for our sins, to then question his care for us uh, you can see why that would be as offensive to God as our pride, right? If if I really knew, if you really knew, that God cared for you all the time, right, that that He loves you, that He is caring for you, that He is out of that love and care for you, that He is working out his, the you know the best for you. Then, then you could face any anxiety-producing situation, right, without anxiety and, and with peace because you would know that working powerfully and wisely behind your hard, suffering realities is, is, is a God who cares for you, a God who knows your name, who knows you fully, And loves you fully. See, that's why we must do what Peter says we must do here, friends. Right? Not only live life in such a way that we don't make sense to the unbelieving world, but live life resisting the devil. Now, don't go Hollywood on me here. Yeah, that's exactly where... A lot of people want to go, right? Spinning heads and green vomit. And, right? You don't need exorcists. You don't need candles. You don't need eerie music, special rites or ceremonies. Remember what it says in Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2.14 about Jesus. It said, Jesus, Jesus himself took on flesh and blood. Why? So that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. See, Jesus did that. When Jesus died on the cross, and then three days later rose alive from his grave, he destroyed the devil. I mean, he he inflicted the mortal wound on Satan. He's not fully dead yet. He's like, you know, that bear you shot. It's a mortal wound, but in some ways that mortal wound, which is, you know, pronounces that bear's inevitable doom, it also makes that bear for the short term even, even more dangerous adversary, right? I'm scared enough of bears when I go hiking, and I don't want to face a wounded bear. So what we have to do is resist the devil. So what do we do? Well, he tells us in verse 9, how do you resist the devil? By being firm in your faith in Jesus. Simple, straightforward. You and I must keep on trusting Jesus and what Jesus accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection that destroyed the devil. In the face of Jesus, friends, Satan must flee. He cannot and he will not destroy any person that is clinging by faith to Jesus. That take heart there. Okay, third and finally. Christian life is always marked by short-term suffering and long-term glory in that order. So be prepared. You know, I'd like to be able to say here that, you know, if you do what Peter says here, if you if you live with humility, if you're consistently casting all of your anxieties on God, if you're resisting the devil, then life then your life, which I typically think of wrongly as the space between my birth and my death, right? Well, how many ever years that is, my life on this side of the grave, then, then if I'm doing all those things right, then, then my life on this side of my death should eventually be smooth sailing. Suffering should go away. Life should pretty much go on as I want it to go on. I'd love to be able to say that to you. But that's not what the word says, and it's not what our experience says, right? Peter says at verse 9 here, is that suffering is what Christians do. And they do it around the world, even while they're resisting the devil. Even while they are humbling themselves under the mighty hand of God, they suffer. And he goes on to say that even that, that that only after you have suffered a little while. And in context here, I believe what Peter means by a little while is your whole life. Sorry. Happy Sunday. Um, The disciples, the apostles, do a much better job than I do of of living with a divine timeline. I, I have a really hard time doing that but you know peter clearly sees his life on a on a, on a, on a scale of eternity and when you're looking at your life on a scale of eternity then 70 80 90 100 years is just a short while and it's only after you've suffered a short while that god through jesus by grace alone because of nothing you did but because of everything jesus did God will restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you. Praise God. Come, Lord Jesus. That's when life will be put right. Friends, life will be put right. But it's a future reality. It's after we've suffered a little while. That's the pattern. And it's always the pattern. So let, let me close by asking the question, what's going to motivate you to endure in faith in Jesus through suffering, right? With humility, with peace, with the sure knowledge that God is for you, not against you. Even when you look at the circumstances of your life and you have a hard time believing that God is not against you with all the hard things going against you? Where do you find the power and the motivation to live in a way that makes no sense to a watching post-Christian world? And the answer, very simply, is you find it in the eyewitness testimony of the apostles. You know, that's really what we have in the New Testament is the eyewitness testimony of the apostles, the people who actually saw Jesus, talked with Jesus, touched Jesus, listened to Jesus. Look at verse 1. Peter is talking as an apostle, as an elder, but also as an apostle. I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness... Of the sufferings of Christ. As well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. There's the pattern, right? Suffering then glory. You see, what Peter's saying is, look, I saw with my own eyes the sufferings of Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, suffered for me who denied Him. Suffered for you suffered from me even though I'm a half-hearted mess suffered even to the point of dying willingly on a cross to pay the penalty for my sin to cover my guilt yours too but you know what Peter even though he recognizes he's not partaking yet in the glory that's going to be revealed. He knows he's going to along with you. As an apostle, he got a glimpse of that glory too. He witnessed that too. He witnessed the sufferings of Christ, but he also got a sneak preview of the glory that he he knows he's going to partake in. Uh, and, he, and he got that sneak preview in two places. One is at the transfiguration, right? When Peter and James and John went with Jesus onto that mountain and somehow miraculously God pulled sort of the veil back and allowed Peter and James and John to see Jesus as he really is. And they couldn't. And when they saw him, man, it was face down in the dirt. You couldn't look at him. He was as bright as lightning. Awesome. Holy, terrifying, powerful, glorious. He saw that. And then he saw that glory in a much more quiet, personal, poignant, but revolutionary way. When he talked with Jesus and he ate breakfast with him, a breakfast of barbecued fish on a beach, days after Jesus was killed and buried. That's what he witnessed. That's what he's telling us about. Put yourself in Peter's place. I mean, we're relying on his testimony, but put yourself in Peter's place. Are you going to face life differently? Are you going to face your fears differently? Are you going to be free to sort of give yourself away in love to other people when you've talked and eaten with a dead man? Who's alive and who's promised to come and take you with him to his glory. That's what we have. The worst that life can throw at you cannot destroy the hope that comes to us from the resurrection. Suffering than glory. Friend, you know, it's. It's the pattern of your life. And some of you may, are probably thinking, well, why does that have to be the pattern? Right? Is God just saying, uh, you know, well, I've got to pick a pattern. I'm going to pick this one. You know, why not glory then suffering? Why is it suffering then glory? Well, it's not, remember, it's not that God is just laying this pattern on us. He followed it too. Right, it's the pattern of Jesus. Right, Jesus, the Son of God, also followed the same pattern: suffering, then glory. Why? It's the deeper magic, right? It, it, that's what C.S. Lewis called it, right, in the Chronicles uh, of Narnia, when um, when Aslan. Uh, the, the, the lion who represented Christ in that in that story, um, who had the power to destroy the witch and her armies, uh, instead walks into the enemy camp and gives himself up, and is uh, shaved and tied onto a stone table and slaughtered. You go what? But what was the deeper magic? It was the deeper magic. What Aslan knew and the witch didn't is that when a willing victim who'd committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table, the stone table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. It's the pattern because self Giving, self-substituting love is the most powerful force in the universe, and it's embodied in Jesus. The world thinks meaning and value and the true self and power and, and importance comes from self-assertion, self-promotion, self-esteem, self-care. You become somebody by acquiring and consuming. But in God's economy, the way God designed his universe, real power, real significance, real transformation comes from self-giving love, from humility, from dying to self, dying to your rights, dying to have to be right or bigger or better or more beautiful than the next person. One pastor I know said it this way the value of a life is always measured. The value of a life is always measured by how much of it is given away. The value of a life is always measured by how much of it is given away. Jesus gave it all away calls us to do the same you want real power you want to really change the world people right you want to transform people rather than just coerce them then give your life away in service to jesus lay your life down in love for him and other people it's the long game of endurance. The world will sneer on the one hand, but the world also knows, it knows that there is an undeniable power in that kind of life. The world sees it. The world can't help itself, right? We just got through days of celebrating the 9-11 heroes. What were we celebrating about those 9-11 heroes? Their self-sacrificing care and humility for others. Giving up their lives so others would live. Right? The world sees that. The world knows that power. It, it oozes into everything that the world does. Even Hollywood. Right? In, in secular, wildly secular films, that, as wide-ranging as uh, The Gladiator, Alien 3, Gran Torino, I Am Legend, watch those movies. The gospel's in there, right? The power of self-sacrificing love, the echo of Jesus, can't even be silenced by a world that's hostile to him. They sneer at him, but they also recognize his power. And it's the power that comes from suffering, from giving yourself away, from surrendering your rights. Guys, let's, let's be people who fix our eyes on Jesus. Let's do that right now at the table. May you and I live for Jesus by being like Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we're going to come to your table now, minister to us by your Holy Spirit as we eat the bread and drink the wine. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Ted Hamilton, Senior Pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido. Please visit us in Escondido, California, or online at newlifepca.com. New Life Presbyterian Church, Escondido, reserves all copyrights as applicable by law. Thank you for listening.